All right, everybody, welcome back to Hypergrowth, the podcast that's dedicated to unpacking what it takes to build a rapidly scalable e-commerce business. I'm your host, Arjun Jolly, co-founder of Ad Quadrant, and joining me today is Danny Tang, founder of one of my favorite subscription snack companies called Boxu. Boxu delivers authentic Japanese food and lifestyle products to customers around the world, has raised $22 million in funding from investors, and is valued at $100 million. Danny, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So Danny, to kick things off, I would love to just unpack your story a little bit. Let's talk about why you launched Boxu, how you came up with the idea, and um, what kind of got you started. Yeah, I mean, so Boxu is kind of this culmination of a lot of my life experiences in my 20s. I actually did not intend to be an entrepreneur when I was kind of living in different places, working in different things, but ended up gaining skills that I needed. So to kind of wind it back a bit, um, I studied psychology and Japanese in college. And then after college, I worked at Google and digital marketing. But after just a year, though, I quit and moved to Tokyo because I was just really passionate about Japanese language, food and culture and just wanted to live there. Um, I had no real agenda. It was just supposed to be a one year study abroad. And I'm loving it so much that I then job hunted and got a job at Rakuten, the Amazon of Japan, and worked there for a few years. And then in total, lived there for four years, got business flown in Japanese, um, and just loved it. And then when I moved back to New York City um, almost 10 years ago now, essentially I had this big reverse culture shock. And that's kind of what started the inspiration for it, was that I realized that Americans had a fairly kind of one-dimensional view of Japan and kind of potentially needed to open up a little more because it was very stereotyped. And I felt kind of invisible again for the first time since I lived in Asia. Um, so I wanted to create something to bridge cultures through authentic Japanese food, products, and kind of media. And that's kind of where Boxy came about was like, what better way than these delicious snacks made from these awesome family businesses throughout Japan. And when I started the company in late 2015, there was nobody else doing what I was doing. There were other Japanese candy boxes, but they were doing more like Japanese Kit Kats and more kitschy character-like things. But for what we're doing, these authentic snacks, um, we were the first and, and only. It's so amazing. And and your experience in Japan, I um I, I resonate with it because Japan is one of my favorite countries in the world. I've uh, traveled a bit between Tokyo, Kyoto, Hakone, and just the culture, the people, the food, everything is just so amazing there. So I am curious. I have to I have to know from your perspective, what was your favorite part about living in Japan as well as your favorite city that you travel to while living in Japan? I think, I mean, it's easy to say like food is the favorite part because everything is delicious there. But I actually, what my favorite part of Japan is, and what, one of the reasons I think I stuck around for so long, even because it's very unique to Japan, is all the hot springs. I love hot spring bathing culture, and we don't have that in America. I remember the first time I even went to a hot spring with friends. I was like so embarrassed because you get fully naked. It's like gender separated and you're supposed to, that's the way you traditionally bathe. And it's, but after I got used to it, it's so freeing just to like be in your own body and be in this awesome, beautiful, clean hot spring bath. And it kind of opens you up and makes you think in different ways. And I really enjoy that. That's the ingrained part of Japanese culture. Uh, so that's probably the number one. Um, and my favorite city, uh, the, there's, there's a lot, <laughs> but I think the most interesting one that I would love to revisit, just because it's a little off the beaten path, um, is Fukuoka. It's in the Kyushu, the southwestern island of Japan. And 
it has this really interesting kind of um, yatai or Japanese like for like kind of mar night market stalls you can think of it as culture that um, is very unique to them and no no other Japanese city really has it this much where you go out at nighttime let's say and there's just like stalls all next to each other but it's not the like cheap type you can think of it's all tented almost and when you like when you walk in open the curtain like yes you might find some like cheap like kind of food pieces but then there's some that are legit like bartending cocktail bars and the guy's like in a tuxedo the bartender and he's making like amazing delicious cocktails and you're like get transported to this like different world and i was like wow what the heck this is so cool um and you can just hop from stall to stall and just experience different food and drinks and so that that was really fun i haven't been there in like 15 years or something i need to go back that's that that sounds like fun i will say i i haven't had that experience i did have the former experience of the hot springs though when i was uh when i was in hakone and i i completely understand uh that 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 sentiment that feeling that you get just by being in nature and that that complete level of clarity that you get from just you know being present and not quite frankly being connected in any way right so yes. it's it's such an awesome experience i totally hear you on that um so, so let's talk a little bit about Boxu and, 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 you know, what you've been doing there. I, I know, uh, I believe you've started it about seven years ago, if I recall correctly. Um, and the, the business has grown and expanded. Tell us a little bit about that, that starting point in the sense that, you know, you obviously started it out of that reverse culture shock, but what about acquiring your first, you know, thousand customers? What did that look like for you? And, um, walk us through that journey a little bit. The first thousand customers were pretty painful, I'm not going to lie. And the main reason it was pretty painful was because I was fully bootstrapped. Like I was a solo bootstrap founder. Um, so I mentioned I started the company in late 2015, but then like officially launched in April 2016. And when I say officially launched, I mean, I just posted to my Facebook because I didn't have budget to like do a PR blitz or to do any of a paid media campaign or anything. So it was just me going like, hey world. <laughs> Hey friends, um, back when people use Facebook, <laughs> like I have, I started this new company. Please sign up. Here's a discount code. Like, would love your help to you know, make this a, a more amazing product. And in total, got maybe I had like 40 subscribers at launch in April 2016, and um, most of which, like half plus, were like friends and family kind of supporting me and things like that. And so from there, though, it was kind of like grinding away and finding every kind of efficient growth tactic I could. So it's everything from affiliate to like kind of subscription box blogs to in influencers, but with in kind, like I couldn't pay them to like CPA based things um, and like to word of mouth, right? So immediately like try to get a referral program in place and things like that, because it's such a unique product. I figured if people get excited about it, they would tell others. And so kind of grinding away at these tactics, as well as lifecycle marketing, of course, like email and things like that. Um, and SMS was not big back then, so it was purely just email marketing. Um, this is actually what grew us to a thousand subscribers. And so it took us about almost two years to get to a thousand subscribers after the box launched. And then um, in, two years into it is when we turned on ads, when we had enough like kind of revenue to do so. And then that kind of grew us further. But in the beginning, it was very much the like guerrilla kind of marketing warfare type of stuff. I love it. Like a, like, a, like a true startup founder too, right? You just roll up your sleeve, get it done in some way, shape or form. And at that point of... And I would even like, yeah, I would table at things too. I would actually go out there constantly be at like this anime expo or this yeah. Columbia startup thing. And like nowadays I rarely do that. It's just not a good like 
time cost efficient situation. But back then, I mean, what else could I do that was free my time, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so you're saying. Well, it's funny. I think I think I told you when we met at um, at Shop Talk in Vegas earlier this year that I'd seen you at a previous conference where you were wearing this like this shirt that stood out to me. I think it had like a dragon or it was, like an anime shirt or something like that. So I love like when you're going out there. I, I even feel like your presence, right? So even even as a founder, like you mentioned that you used to go to these expos and do those tables and things like that. But even when you're walking into a room, Danny, I've seen you do it, like. You could just tell that, you know, you're about the brand, right? You're about it. You know, you want it to succeed. And, and I, I just, I, I really love that about you in terms of the energy that I got from you when, when we met. Um, when you turned on ads, so what did that look like for you? Um, how did you think about your strategy? And you said it was about two years in. So I assume that was around 2017, 2018. What did that look like then? And what does that look like now for you based on what shifted from a paid media standpoint? Hmm. Yeah, so 2018, I mean, honestly, in some ways, I wish I was able to have fundraised earlier because that would have allowed me to advertise earlier back when Facebook ads were super cheap and a lot easier. But we only started it in 2018, um, two years into it, uh, partially because I had hired a marketing person ahead that like had more experience in it than me. But then secondly, it was just, like I said, we grew our revenue enough that it made sense to start marketing. And also we had to borrow money to do so. Like we worked with... Um, the very first one I worked with this company called ClearBank. Now it's called ClearCo. They basically give you like working capital loans. And that gave us like enough capital to just start testing, which was just hard to do as a bootstrap founder. But yeah, what it looked like was literally kind of using our in-house creative team because of course, once again, no budget, hire external creative people um, and uh, kind of creating static and video assets to then just advertise and try and target and do lookalikes and all the basic stuff back then. But even just doing that, even with us not being as polished or refined as we could be and in our Facebook strategy, we it still actually grew us to like 5,000 plus subscribers over that course of that year. I don't, I don't remember what we ended on, maybe even 7,000. Um, and so like clearly, you know, paid media at that time did a good job, like especially with Google ads and Facebook ads and targeting was a lot easier. And so we were pretty heavy on that. Having said that though, our cap was pretty volatile. We, still, we always had some issues with Facebook because I think we just didn't get the strategy down correct. And then come 2021 with the iOS changes that a lot of folks are aware of, that then changed the entire landscape. Now everything was different. Now like you couldn't just be reliant on Facebook. Thankfully for us, because we already had issues with Facebook and like kind of scaling it like efficiently, we already diversified away from Facebook in early 2020, even before COVID when we started doing YouTube influencer marketing and we were one of the first in that space in our category. And so that was great. We like killed it in there. And that's how we actually like tripled our growth in 2020 um, during that time period in addition to COVID. And so when the um, iOS changes happened, we were not fully affected. So let's talk a little bit about the YouTube influencer marketing strategy. Um, how how did that work? How did you get started in it? And if, if let's say for example, if I was an e-commerce subscription brand today, uh, and I was in that period of, let's say, 10 million in, in, in total revenue. Um, I wanted to get into YouTube, YouTube influencer marketing. What would your suggestions and advice be for me as a fellow founder? It has, I, I would say, give it a shot. It's always good to test these channels. And YouTube influencer generally is, a, you can actually measure it better than some other channels. But, uh, um, it has become a bit saturated nowadays in, in 2023. I'm going to be honest with everybody, but I still think it's worthwhile. The first thing to do is to identify like, like 
the channels or the, the influencers that you think would work well for your audience, right? And because all of these creators, they have demographic information about their their kind of follower base, etc. Also, they look through their videos and see which ones have sponsorships. Do they even do sponsorships? How well do those videos do? And then, um, you know, this is if you're doing it yourself. If you work with an agency, they can do a lot of this for you. But if you do it yourself, you, gotta, you still have to identify a lot of these players. And then you contact the creators, um, you know, send them a one-sheeter, which is about your brand and why it's so great to work together. And then you negotiate down to the price of the video is usually how it goes. And in our case, um, what we've seen over the last three years now that we've been doing this is that CPMs have gotten more expensive because creators have been able to demand more as the host space has gotten more saturated. Having said that, though, because of the pullback in DDC over the last six months to a year that I've been seeing, um, we've been seeing a little bit of more negotiating room with um, YouTube content creators because they, they don't have as many sponsorships as they did before. They, this stuff ebbs and flows so quickly. <laughs> you have to like constantly be on it to know it. But yeah, and so then it's like testing that out. And I'm definitely not, if you only have like a 50K budget to test YouTube, don't work with one 50K creator. I would work with like, 10 5k creators or even 20 2.5k creators to really spread and see which ones work and why um, and they should each get a different discount code as well exclusive to them so you can track the conversions so how about finding those creators did you use any any tools or was it basically self-sourced with someone internally on staff in the very beginning we got introduced to an agency that did a lot of that for us so we start of course approve things and whatever but this agency specializes in youtube influencers so they had existing relationships negotiate with them and so um and then they have like a dashboard that you can track the performance of how everything is doing and so we did that with that agency and then we ended up switching a couple of years later as we grew with to a like a slightly more boutique agency that worked with bigger creators because that's what we were kind of looking for as we scaled up and so but having said that though because our program grew so much and we ended up working with like at some points like 20 30 plus creators a month or something like quite um intense like we ended up having to also hire an influencer marketing manager in-house yeah. because that's a lot even with an agency to kind of manage all at once and so like i would recommend trying to find a good agency to start with. And then if you get big enough, then you would probably have to hire a headcount for that. Got it. So, so after you launched the, the YouTube creator strategy early 2020 and looking to where we're at now, taking into consideration DTC pullback, et cetera, let's talk a little further about what other strategies you're deploying today. Are you deploying other creator strategies on TikTok, uh, Instagram, et cetera, or has your strategy shifted in terms of how you're thinking about, about both acquisition and retention of customers? Yeah, so taking a, a step back, as you said, the whole strategy of the customer base in general, it definitely has shifted because across the board, customer acquisition has just gotten more expensive. There are exceptions and there are some companies that do well, but in general, it has just gotten a lot more expensive and we don't really want to keep paying these unprofitable customer acquisition costs. And so what we've been doing is kind of trying to steer. It's hard to steer a ship though, but it's like bigger and they have a way of doing things. And I'm like repeatedly telling my marketing and creative teams to like focus on retention slash reactivating old customers. Like we've been doing this for over seven years now. So we have a good amount of inactive subscribers that we need to find ways to reactivate them, whether it be promotions, deals, free gifts, like something, benefits. It doesn't have to always just be discounts. And um, and so let's, it's a lot cheaper to reactivate them and they already know the product and the brand. Let's figure that out. 
and work on that. Having said that, you can't, of course, stop new customer acquisition. That's always going to be needed. And so what we've been doing is continuing to test what works. So like we're still doing YouTube influencers, but we're trying to be more careful about the budgeting for that to not be over-indexed on it. Um, we were testing TikTok for a while, but we actually have now recently just pretty much paused all TikTok ads. It just has not been working. And even when it worked, it was always more expensive than Meta. So if that's the case, then like, why not just reallocate it to Meta when everything is getting so expensive? However, we are still trying to do organic TikTok. That's something that I've heard can work, not only from your own channel, but from like product seeding, like contacting like dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of TikTok, they could even be micro-influencers um, and sending them your product and then getting them to post about it or just sending them and hoping that they post about it, you know, like anything like that could also be a good way to drive awareness and that's not too expensive. So we're still working on that, but a lot of our focus recently has actually been back on Meta because I'm hearing rumblings from other DTC founder friends that Meta is starting to work again, like not as amazing as before, but certainly better than the last two years of tumultuousness. Interesting. Yeah, it, that that's, that's a really interesting point because um, the last two years, I think many brands have experienced that incredible tailwind. Um, some brands are now experiencing that pullback and some are actually, even though they're experiencing experiencing that pullback, they're just putting the gas on um, acquire at all costs and kind of looking to capture market share. So I, I think it's it's interesting to see kind of that, you, you know, your take and some of the other DC founders you've spoken with about what's happening on Meta because we're seeing the same um, as far as how, what the mentality of brands are that are leaning into these platforms. If you're leaning into it with the mentality of, you know, you want to get it to work and, you know, you, you, you want to spend through or whatever it might be to acquire customers. There's definitely ways to, to find that pot of gold. On the flip side, there are brands that are saying, you know what, I'm going to slow down my acquisition efforts. To your point, you know, it doesn't sound like you're stopping, but there are brands that are slowing down and saying, let me focus on CRO and lifecycle marketing and take the customers that I already have coming to the site, convert them at a higher rate, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I'm curious mm -hmm. to kind of get, get your opinion on something here. So when you're looking at, you know, subscription business that you run, you're looking at uh, the channels that you've worked with, how do you think about the specific KPIs that you measure against, as well as how do you think about measurement and attribution um, when you're running on multiple channels? Yeah, <laughs> attribution. The other, it's always a thing we trying to figure right? out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, back when everybody just did Meta, it was pretty easy to do attribution yeah. because you only had one platform. Now that you do it across multiple channels, when you when is it double counted? When is it not counted? And so, I mean, we do use tools like Measured and things to try and get us like show incrementality and some level of attribution. And so, what we're doing about it is using. Um, a combination of our own internal data. So we have an internal data team and we build our like dashboards and kind of attribution modeling, um, which I know most companies don't have per se, depending on their size. But so we do a combination of that. And actually, we still use a lot of fairing, um, fairing post-purchase survey, oh, if folks are not aware. Like it's, yeah, it's just, it's on the thank you page and it's an easy question on the widget that's like, how did you hear about us? And like YouTube, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Google, whatever. Um, and you know, a good, like 50% of people fill out that survey. And so it, you know, doesn't give you a hundred percent, but it gives you good directionality of how they heard about you. That doesn't necessarily mean what their last click was, of course, but then for that, maybe we'll look at Google analytics, right? So we kind of see this whole picture of, and we do kind of almost like 
testing in our own ways. Like a good example for the whole month of April, we were pretty much dark on YouTube influencers because we wanted to see the impact on them being there or not. Because we've been using them for so long, we were like, is it actually still working? We don't know. And then when we removed it, we did see a drop in conversions last month. And so that's something we do need to bring back. You know, things like that. As we're trying to like, you know, one and zero certain things to see like what's having impact or not. Because it is hard to do direct attribution. Interesting. And, and you know, the point around um, measured, measure, measurements for sure an interesting tool. We know them well. And um, even on fairing, when you think about those post-purchase surveys, I'm curious to get your take. How are you, you got the data from measured, you got the, the data from fairing. How are you leveraging that data? Like, what do you do with it once you get that data in? How does your team action it to actually make those decisions uh, that will drive your strategy forward? Yeah, that is the next step. Um, so we are working on that now. Because <laughs> currently, yeah, we're kind of just reporting on it. So we have like an automation thing that has a daily flash that goes out into our Slack that shows us our daily numbers, but also shows the fairing data on a daily basis, as well as month to date and stuff like that. So you, you can see directionally, but it's not helping us like build audiences or anything like that just yet. But um, like we just found out that fairing actually, you can ingest that data into measured and then build something off of that. So, you know, that's something we're going to work on as well as we, we just want things to get more automated. There just needs to be a lot more automation with all these tools that have been independent, but now can talk to each other. And then maybe build audiences from that, or maybe like kind of target towards that or something along those lines. Awesome. So, so switching gears for a second here, Danny, how are you thinking about creative? Um, you know, obviously you've had the creator, uh, you know, experiences across YouTube and other channels, but I'd love to get your feedback in terms of how you're thinking about creative specifically as it applies to today's landscape around the D2C pullback post iOS 14 privacy changes, et cetera. What are your thoughts on creative and how are you, how are you leaning into it? I mean, in many ways, one could argue that because it's not easy to do lookalike audiences or targeting like that anymore through any type of advertising, it's all about the creative. And the creative has become more important than ever, but you don't, you won't actually know which creative is going to win. So you have to have multiple different types of creatives and test through all of them and let Meta like decide how their algorithm is going to be showing these things. And then using from, from there, pivoting and getting learnings and doing that way is, is my recommendation. Having said that, we're still not fully doing that in my opinion, but um, that's an easier thing to say than do when like there's 5 million resources pulling at you yeah, and you've sure got to work on different things. But yeah, yeah. So, I mean, from what I hear, what we're trying to execute on is to pump out more creative. I mean, especially in the world of TikTok ads, if anybody wants to do TikTok ads, those ads fatigue incredibly quickly. Like you need to be pumping in your creative every week, right? As opposed to meta, which usually on a monthly basis is generally good enough. Um, and so it's one of the reasons we couldn't keep up. It's like exhausting to be creating this cycle. And so we're, we're trying to go back to meta more, invest more heavily into that. Yeah. And TikTok itself is just a completely different beast when it comes to creative. I've seen so many brands make the attempt to take their um, their Instagram creative and just reapply it to TikTok and it almost never works um, because that one almost never works. Yeah. It's just, it's just not, not, not the play that you want to, you want to execute. So uh, no, I appreciate your outlook and I agree with you. Look, I mean, creative to me, it's, it's just a matter of, it, it's the thing that's going to create the initial set of emotions that are going to cause your consumer to interact, engage, uh, purchase, et cetera. So it's important to continuously test important to really, um, 
put that creative out that's that's going to resonate with the specific audience and persona that you're going after really speak to the um, the pains and the value points that that your consumer and your persona is ultimately going to care about and and just continue testing right so um it's a heavy lift but it's a it's an important one as well as you continue to scale so we're, we're almost up with time here Danny and I want to be respectful of of what you've got going on I know it's AAPI Heritage Month so happy AAPI Heritage Month um I know the APAP <laughs> events happening this month so I know you're busy but I just you know in closing I'd like to get get a, a big question answered and that big question is um what keeps you up at night uh as a as a successful e-com founder um you've built an amazing business again it's one of my favorite snack box companies uh that i've come across and I, i'd love to get your take just what what keeps you up at night um and what are you thinking about nowadays the thing that's keeping me up at night is about the whole d to c e-com space in general like because we're doing our best we're, we're you know the rate at which you need to adapt is like faster than ever before and, and it's just a little worrisome in that like um we are working on like four slash five different unique um business lines now at fox so that's one of the things i fundraised on and they're like four of the five are all e-commerce e dc based and so they're all kind of impacted similarly and so we're just like oh my god like are we too over leveraged in the dc space like should we move the, our fifth business line is trying to get into CPG retail to create our own kind of boxy branded snacks. And um, we already have one that we're kind of selling independence, but we're trying to do a mass a retail one as well. And like, you know, do we need to move on that faster? And the, the issue though, is that there's only so much faster you can work on CPG retail that takes time um, as opposed to a lot of online stuff where you can launch it much quicker. And so we're constantly working on this and hopefully we'll be in retail stores by end of year or early next year at latest. But it's like, is it all retail now? Like, will the ADC make that like, you know, I'm I'm confident DC is always here to stay. The whole share of e-com is constantly growing, but it's like, when will it get a little bit easier again? <laughs> it just hasn't been easy at all for the last like two years, I would say. And so it's just been a lot of grit to get through that and a lot of adapting and getting efficient and cutting down on things, but I'm um, kind of looking for that next, next wind of what, and what that would be. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing what's inside your head on that question, Danny. It's an important question that I think that, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of things are happening around us with, within D2C and the industry as a whole, but also macroeconomically. And there's certainty in some areas, uncertainty in others. So I think that a lot of founders are facing those, those, um, you know, kind of variety of things that are keeping them up at night and what they have to think about as they push forward. So really appreciate you. You taking the time to answer that, Danny. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Um, it was great to have you on the show, and I'm certain that our listeners are really going to get some value out of what you shared today. Um, your story is amazing. Uh, obviously, we 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 both and we could talk about that for hours. But thank you again, Danny. To everyone out there listening, and thank you today. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned for the next edition of Hypergrowth, and uh, please check out Boxy.com, amazing company founded by Danny Tang. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye.